Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Oh, do we have a sugar-free treat for you. Starting today in our Sugar-Free for Life on Sweet Enough Facebook group, we are hosting the Food Junkies Food Addiction Summit. It's free, and every day for the month of October, we'll be featuring an inspiring speaker or a delicious, quick and easy, sugar-free food preparation video created by our friend Tony Vassallo of Moda Nutrition Inc. That's 31 days of food addiction recovery magic. We start off with a week of leaders in the field, Kay Shepard, Bitten Johnson, and our own resident guru, Dr. Vera Tarman. They share their insights into the biggest challenges food addicts face and how they work to help support the individuals through these. Then we take on the nutritionists and dietitians working in this field and ask, how do we find the right food plan? What works best for the clients they work with? How do they define abstinence? We cap off this week by talking trauma-informed nutrition with David Wiss and why it's so important to recognize historical, systematic childhood and food-related trauma, how it can actually disrupt the way our bodies and minds function and create negative relationships with food. In week three, we dive in with the clinicians actively working in the field and ask them what works best for the clients they work with, what doesn't work well, is there a secret to success? What have they had to become more flexible with? These are conversations you won't want to miss. We wrap up the week with Molly Carmel, who explains what harm reduction is, how you use harm reduction in food addiction recovery, and why it's something she adamantly believes in. Finally, we have a week where we speak with individuals just like me and you. They bravely show up and share their experience, strength, and hope. They speak of the challenges, how they found the strength to keep going what they do for their recovery every day, and what they needed to hear when they first started this journey. You'll meet some who've been doing this for over 20 years and some who are still in the early days. Our hope is that if you are struggling right now finding your right fit, something or someone will speak to you, that you will connect with a message that gives you the hope and motivation to stay abstinent another day, that you will see that you're not alone, that there are so many of us working in the field right now for you and your recovery. Join us in this fight. Allow it to open up a world you only imagined was possible, a world where you thrive rather than just survive. It's going to be an exciting celebratory month in the world of food addiction recovery. Don't miss out. But without further ado, let's get into this awesome episode today. Molly and I sit down with Dan DeFigio. Dan is a well-known nutrition expert who's been featured on CNN's Fit Nation, the Dr. Phil Show, Self Magazine, Reader's Digest, Shape Magazine, and a host of other media outlets. Dan is the author of multiple books, including the best-selling From the Dummies series, Beating Sugar Addiction for Dummies. We speak to him about the difference working with sugar addicts, emotional eaters, and stress eaters, what he thinks is the wrong way to beat sugar cravings, and he shares his five non-intuitive lifestyle tweaks that will dramatically improve your well-being. 
We really enjoyed this interview and we hope you will too. All right, Dan, we are so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, We are wondering if you can kind of share how addiction has impacted your own life and what was your kind of aha moment when it came to realizing that sugar addiction was real? I started doing exercise and nutrition coaching in the early 1990s, and it became apparent to me very early on that sugar addiction, stress eating, emotional eating, you know, all of that kind of stuff is a big problem for a lot of people. So I had to learn how to work with this. My own story, I mean, my father was an alcoholic. My mother's got food issues. So I've been immersed in the addiction environment my whole life. So I understand where it comes from. I understand what we can do to help pull ourselves out of it. So I started working with folks in coming from that slant since it's so prevalent. So was there kind of a moment where you realized like this is sugar addiction and how do I treat this? And what did you end up doing in order to figure out what was the best way to work with that? Having been around addicts before, having been to 12-step meetings, hearing people's stories, the idea of addiction is kind of the same, regardless of what the substance is we're talking about. So I happen to work with people who use food, but it's the same as people who use alcohol or people who use drugs or gambling or sex or whatever your thing is. Those same wounds and hurts and workarounds that we do as humans to try to feel better, it doesn't matter what the substance is. The motivation is really the same. So I guess... I didn't have a specific aha moment, but it, <laughs> who is the Supreme Court justice that was talking about? I can't tell you exactly what it is, but I know it when I see it. It's sort of that situation. When you're talking to someone and they're using language and describing behaviors that are very typical of addictive behavior, then you, you, know, you know that there's a problem here and it needs to be addressed. My disclaimer up front is I am not a mental health professional. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. So no one should take anything that I say seriously. Oh my goodness. I'm unqualified for life. So, <laughs> so ignore me. This is for entertainment purposes only, it's right? Exactly. I just haven't been <laughs> lucky for the last 30 years. Excellent. So, okay. So you have this kind of personal experience watching this, having been to meetings, being around people, you're listening for certain things that people are saying. Maybe you're watching for certain behaviors. What is it that made you want to work with people who struggle with sugar and food addiction type stuff? Or was it just that it kind of, that's what it evolved into because you were already working with these clients And then that was the issue. I mean, how did that transpire? If you started as this nutrition fitness coach, how did it transpire to writing the book and another one coming and kind of fill us in? How did you get to that place of wanting to work with this particular section of people? Well, Molly, I didn't set out saying this is what I want to do. I started working with people and that was a big problem that was prevalent and in my face every day. So I realized this is a thing. And a lot of people struggle with it. So I, you know, I started doing some work with it, learning ways to help people through this. I write a lot. And so I post a lot of stuff on the internet and I get interviewed for magazines and stuff like that all the time. So one day out of the blue, the people who published the dummies books just called me up and said, we love your stuff and we want you to write a book for us. 
So we started talking about some ideas and concepts about, you know, stress eating and emotional eating and sugar addiction. And we landed on writing a book for uh, beating sugar addiction for dummies. And that's how that came about. Yeah. And I guess that makes a lot of sense because I think probably a lot of individuals too, who come to see you, they'll do the exercise part, but it's like the food part where they really struggle, right? On sticking to the plan. And we know that you can't exercise out exercise a bad diet, right? Or a bad food plan. So I imagine figuring out the food helps them be more successful in the long run fitness wise and health wise as well. So that makes perfect sense. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's interesting that you work with sugar addicts, emotional eaters, stress eaters. So can you share, is there any differences in working with these different classifications of individuals or do you feel like it is a similar kind of approach that you take with them? It is similar because stress eating, comfort eating, overeating, sugar addiction, these are all versions of emotional eating, using food as an emotional substitute or distraction. And I'll talk about that later. Those are the big two things. So some of the nuts and bolts and techniques are a little bit different. If you're talking about sugar, for example, you know, you, I've got some specific things to help people with sugar cravings, for example as opposed to overeating or stress eating, which could be any substance, right? But the umbrella of emotional eating is really the the same. It's all wrapped up in the same concepts. Yeah. So we would definitely have colleagues that might push back on that kind of idea and say, well, there's no such thing as emotional drinking or emotional meth use or emotional gambling or something like that. They might push back and say, well, that's actually addiction and everything else falls under that umbrella. Have you found that to be true with, I mean, at this point, like you said, 30 years of working with clients, like what would you say to those folks? You can call it whatever you like. I don't care. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to get hung up on whether we call this emotional eating or a version of addiction or whatever. I mean, if you need to call it something so that your insurance pays for it, then fine, we'll call it that. But I'm interested in helping people and getting to the root of these issues. So the name doesn't matter to me personally. Got it. So it sounds like you just really recognize or you work really hard to get to the root of what it is. And then, like you said, you have these different, like with sugar, you have these tools that you might use for cravings, but with overeating, which can be with any food, you might use a different tool. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So how do you work with clients then? Like, what have you found that works best? What doesn't work well? So maybe start with what are all the ways, like if somebody were to listen to this interview and get a hold of you afterwards, like what are the options to work with you? I like to start with a phone call or a Zoom call just to get to know somebody and make sure that we're right for each other because that's not always the case. If we are, then I can do either in-person coaching calls, which typically what I end up doing most of. After we get a little bit of traction and stability and things are going well, then I do what we just call email coaching, which is sort of a daily accountability and check-in. You know, I look at people's food journals, talk of a type about any struggles or things like that, just check-ins and support on an ongoing basis. But there's no in-person time on the calendar. I try to do some group stuff for a while. And that works really well for a lot of folks, but apparently I'm just not a group coaching kind of person. It seems like things go much better for my clients with the one-on-one help. So that's pretty much what I do. I drop the group stuff because it wasn't great. and I don't want to give somebody anything that isn't great. 
Yeah. And then you also have like a course, right. That people could buy. And so like, how does that fit? How I does do that have an online that? course. It's called sugar-free me. And it's basically a way to eat less sugar. It's all the sort of foundational concepts that most people need to get under their belt. So if you don't want to do a one-on-one course of action and you want to buy an online course, it's a really good start. It's not very expensive. I think it's on sale right now. So So if I signed up for that course, I do it, but like something still, I just still can't get off the sugar. My next step might be to get a hold of you and do one-on-one. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. And then when you do that, like, do you have like a curriculum that you take people through or it's really individualized to what that person needs? Totally individualized. Yeah. So then that brings me to what works best. What have you found works best for your clients? Here you're doing these individual programs, 30 years of experience, what works best and what doesn't work so well? That's a really good question, Molly. What works best in my experience is that one-on-one because everybody's different. Everyone's struggles and histories and triggers and hot buttons and reactions to things. We're all different. So having a coach who understands you and has literally a few thousand people under his belt who can help guide you through this, that works very, very well. I mean, there's no substitute for having a guide and a coach like that. What doesn't work well is trying to white knuckle stuff and quit cold turkey. There are plenty of detox plans and support groups for people who just, you know, you just quit sugar, 100% done. In my experience, there is a very small percentage of the population who can do that and stay that way. Most people need a different approach, sort of a step-down approach that attends to some of the the underlying emotional reasons and triggers like we talked about earlier, that why are you doing this? That's the main problem. I mean, everybody knows that they should eat better. And if it's just a matter of I'm quitting sugar and I'm never eating it again, if it were easy, everybody would do it, but it's not easy. And so trying to do that for most people, like I said, I don't want to discount anybody who's had a great success, just cold turkey, never, ever eating anything with sugar in it for the rest of their lives. Okay, more power to you. But for your average Jane and Joe, that is not the right approach. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think there is, it sounds to me like what you do is very much a harm reduction approach. And we know with food addiction, it definitely is the spectrum, right? So you have those individuals who are late stage and it might be best for them to like do the cold turkey. And that's, you need to meet the client where they're at and what they're motivated to do. And so it sounds like that personalized approach can be so beneficial. I don't know about you, but I know me and Molly spend a ton of time doing like psychoeducation, teaching individuals tools for like craving management. And I think I was looking at your, on your website and you had like, what are the wrong ways to beat sugar cravings? Can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe share what are some better ways? I think that the idea of abstinence is really hard for most people, as I just mentioned. So anything that involves just psychological denial on a permanent basis is probably not going to go very well. So some better versions of ways to beat sugar cravings. When we have these cravings, this is a a little bit more complicated, sugar cravings, because we have a physiological stimulus, right? There's an actual physical craving and it works on the dopamine receptors and the reward system and all that. So there's an actual chemical issue at stake and we have this emotional issue at stake. So they both come into play, which is why food issues can be so challenging. 
So some ways to manage cravings without trying to just deny yourself what you want. Easy things that come to mind that work well for most people are doing a healthier substitution. Let's say, so something really common for folks is I do find during the day and then after dinner, later at night, I get these crazy sugar cravings and I can't help it. I can't stop. So instead of just trying to totally deny yourself what you are craving at the time, find a healthier thing that satisfies a little bit of that sweet craving. So I like to use strawberries. Those are great for me because I love strawberries and cherries are some of my favorites. So if I get a little sweet craving, just have a few of those. And it's a healthier version than uh, ice cream or donuts or whatever else you might typically reach for. Another thing is make sure that you're drinking enough water. As I mentioned in the Beating Sugar Addictions for Dummies book, the hunger center of the brain and the thirst center of the brain are like right next to each other. And so when you get a signal in there, you can easily confuse being thirsty for wanting food. And then if you want to get technical, I don't know how nerdy some of the listeners are, and I don't want to bore anybody with this, but we have a complicated nervous system feedback system in our digestion system too, the enteric nervous system. So that has sensors for like how much volume is in the stomach and how many calories have you had and how empty are your fat cells, those kinds of things. So your body wants to have a certain volume of food. Let's say you are accustomed to eating a basketball amount of food every day. So that volume sensor doesn't know or care whether that is a basketball filled with donuts or a basketball filled with mixed green salad. So part of what you can do to sort of help some of these cravings is make sure that you get enough volume of food, but make it healthy food, high fiber, high nutrient, low sugar food. That's a big thing too. So healthier upgrades for the sweet tooth, make sure you're drinking enough water and get enough of the high volume, high fiber, fill up your stomach foods that are not bad for you. So that makes me think of, we often find that it's not even necessarily The clients, I think that we have that struggle the hardest are those volume addicts in that they're constantly looking for that stretch to the stomach and they become concerned that if I continue to have this basketball size volume of food, even if it's these vegetables and whatever else, I'm going to gain weight. I'm going to, you know, whatever, but there's also, you know, I think messaging that that volume piece is bad. So, I mean, how do you help people with that? Like if they sat down to a steak and they can eat like three steaks, you come across that. And how do you help people navigate that? I guess is really my ultimate question. I am that guy. So I am an easy overeater. My off switch doesn't work well. So I have learned ways to manage that particular overeating concept. Speed of how you eat is helpful because I don't know about anyone who's listening to this, but if I'm not careful, I can plow through some food fast <laughs> when left to my own devices. So, so slowing down, there are little tools you can use, like being mindful about chewing, like how many times you chew, putting your fork down in between bites, making sure that you don't put that much food on your plate. Make it hard to eat more than you probably should. You know, Use your grown-up brain to set your portions on the plate first. Like, okay, that's a decent portion of protein, and here are my vegetables, and is there something else that's going to be here? Okay, so that is like the grown-up part says that's a decent portion. So we're going to eat that first, and we're not going to leave the serving dishes on the table so it's easy to go for seconds. If I really want to have more food after that, I put a 20-minute timer on myself. 
because that's about how long it takes for the signaling from the digestion system to the brain to trigger like, okay, that's cool. You've had enough food. So I make myself wait for 20 minutes before I have more. And that helps a lot because that the time delay is one of the things that was kind of kicking my ass for a long time. It's so funny. Our listeners can't see us, obviously, but Clarissa and I are both like, yes, and we're nodding our heads and giving thumbs up because you're speaking our language, Dan. And we just appreciate hearing that from you because I think our listeners and our clients hear it from us all the time, right? But sometimes you have to hear it from another voice. Like you have to get this message on repeat in the form of different voices before sometimes it clicks for us. So thank you so much for answering that kind of impromptu question. So we've heard you talk about sugar is often a distraction. And can you speak a little bit more what you mean about that? Yes. If I were to simplify emotional eating, whether you call it sugar addiction or stress eating or overeating, impulsive eating, whatever. If I were to simplify emotional eating, there are basically two versions of it. The distraction is one. Fortunately, that's the easy one. The hard one, let me talk about the hard one first. (laughs) The hard one is using food as a substitute for something that we want emotionally. If you are upset or lonely or angry or whatever is happening emotionally, you have a need. And what we want in our limbic system, right? The amygdala, the limbic system, the emotional center of the brain, we want to feel better. So we have developed this habit of the lie that food can give us what we want. Uh, If you're lonely and you want companionship, we pretend that food will give you companionship. If you're overwhelmed and stressed out, we will pretend that food can give you calm. Food cannot give us those things, but because of habits, we pretend that it can. And that is one of the tough things about unwinding emotional eating, is getting to the root of those needs and desires and triggers and figuring out ways to heal that and have techniques and processes that will help you do better, healthier behaviors. That's the hard one. Two is what you asked about is the distraction. That's the easy one. Going back to the emotional concept, we as humans carry around with us an enormous variety of feelings all day, both positive and unpleasant. We as humans do not like to feel bad. If we're feeling upset or overwhelmed or stressed out or angry or lonely or depressed or having self-esteem, shame, whatever it is that feels crappy, our brains will do just about anything that it can do to give us a break from feeling crappy, even if it's bad for us. And a box of cookies gives you something else to think about for a few minutes. So that is the distraction. If you're feeling shame and overwhelmed and hopeless, that feels awful. Eating cookies for five minutes gives you a five-minute break from feeling awful. Plus, it tastes good. So it's a double whammy. So that's the distraction. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, in the addiction world, we would say that you are using food as your drug to cope with whatever emotion that you're experiencing. And that's the cycle that then goes on repeat and the reward pathway gets more and more ingrained in our head. So it's exactly, you know, what you're speaking to today. So that's so wonderful. Yeah, I even thought of like uh, smoking a cigarette, like as you were describing that, I'm like, oh, I think about like all the, like I waited tables all through my undergrad. And I just remember all the other servers would like go out, take their smoke break and like, that's what it was, right? Like that was like the distraction from, as you were describing that, that's what I thought of is like, you know, those smoke breaks that people would take, like, oh, I just need like five minute, like reprieve from life. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Clarissa. 
No, no, it's so true. It's like that escape, right? It's like whatever we can find that best, like either our system craves that will give us that escape. I mean, that's another reason we use food for sure. Absolutely. We need those coping mechanisms. And I think where people end up really struggling and getting in trouble and having relapses and roller coasters and whatever is when they try to deny the need. If we have an emotional need for a reprieve, we have to honor that. And we need to give ourselves a reprieve. But the problem is, if you have built this association and habit that reprieve equals junk food or a cigarette or a bottle of uh, bourbon or, you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever your thing is, then that is a hurtful reprieve. So we need to come up with healthier and not hurtful reprieve. So trying to deny the emotional needs is a very temporary solution. It's white knuckling and it doesn't last. And that's why people go What the phrase they use all the time is on, on and off the wagon. So we need, we as coaches need to come up with, help these people come up with healthier ways to get the emotional part of the brain what it needs. Right. To like face their feelings and soothe without food. Find a different way, yes, to soothe and, and get what you need. Eventually, I mean, ultimately, not to get too like transcendental here, but the end goal through all of our personal work and spiritual development and that sort of thing is to be okay with feeling bad, right? That's the ultimate goal, to be able to sit there and say, wow, I'm really upset or I'm really stressed out or, or whatever, and that's okay. It's, I don't like it, but it, I don't need to like fix it. There's nothing's wrong that needs to be stopped. That's the end goal, but that's a lifelong process right there. So Right. And it's so hard when we've been numbing those feelings for so long. So when we start to feel them, it does feel like it's going to kill us, right? For sure. So you've been doing this work for a long time. And we often ask individuals who have so much experience in the field, is there something that you started with when you believed, like, I don't know, like practice that you really was like, oh, this is the way it has to be. And you've learned through experience with clients that that probably wasn't the right way to work with individuals. And so you've created more flexibility around it. Is there anything that you could talk to us about that? Gosh, yeah. I think, I mean... Things evolve both in clinical knowledge, right? Uh, We as practitioners, we've learned a lot. I mean, back in the 90s, when I started doing this, it was all about fat grams, right? Everybody was counting their fat grams and that was the big thing. And if you stayed in in your zone there, you were fine. So things have definitely evolved from a scientific and awareness standpoint. But I think that the biggest, I guess, progression and development of my approach to things is the ability to sort of figure out or get a sense of what style of approach and what kind of techniques are going to be best for a person. And that's not really something you can explain like how it happens. But when you work with a thousand people, you start to recognize some patterns and start to get some intuitions about this person is somebody who likes and does well with a lot of structure and detail. So we are going to record your calories and your macros and that kind of stuff because that works for you. Some people would rather pull their hair out than have to write things down and track that kind of stuff. So we focus on other things. So I think the ability to sort of get a sense of what does and does not work for a particular individual early in the game has been a very nice development career-wise from all this experience. So I don't try to make people do things that 
probably aren't going to work for them if it doesn't feel right. Yeah. I think that's, as you were saying that again, I was like thinking about, I have a master's degree in mental health counseling. And I just remember like reading all this stuff in books, but I had already been working in the field. I was just making it legitimate. And I just remember reading these textbooks going, that ain't real world. Like that's never going to work. I was working with in correction. So like these guys had come out of prison, right? And I'm in this residential facility with them. And I'm thinking I'm going to get stabbed. Like you have to meet the clients where they are and you have to learn to read the room, right? Like you have to read. And like you said, like some people really like structure and they want to have like this really clear thought out plan and they want it in black and white and they want like accountability every day. And then you have the other people that show up and they're kind of like, I don't want to have to weigh and measure my food. I don't want to have to report to you what my food is. I just want you to take my word that I'm not eating sugar and flour or whatever it might be. And like trust, like building that trust and allowing them to go out and do the things they're going to do and then talk about it afterwards. Did that work? Did that not work? So I just, I really appreciated hearing that from you. What do you think that you offer clients that feels really unique compared to maybe some of the other coaches, clinicians that are out there right now? Like what about you or your programs? What do you offer that's unique, you think, to this field? I think it's what we just said, the ability to be flexible enough to walk someone down a path wherever they are and whatever's going on and whatever we have to work with. I don't have programs per se. I do have that one online course that we discussed, you know, the sugar-free meat course. And that's a nice foundation because there are some important concepts that are going to be useful for most people. But I don't try to fit everybody into certain boxes. I don't have one approach that I could say, this is how I go about coaching people to do better with emotional eating or eat less sugar or exercise more. There's not one way. So being 142 years old, like I am, I have a lot of options for people and I can go take things a lot of different ways. So I think that's probably something that would set me apart from other folks who do nutrition coaching. Yeah. And I think that's so true because if it was just up to a program, we would all have been able to buy that one diet book and we would all be fixed, right? But that book wasn't written for us. And so it probably doesn't apply to us, everything in that book. And so I think that again, is that unique one-on-one individual approach that can make your program or your coaching so successful. So can you tell us in working with all the clients you have over the years, is there a number one factor that makes clients successful in breaking the sugar habit or the sugar addiction? Yes. The one switch that needs to flip in someone's head is the fact that there isn't anything out there that can fix you or make you a certain thing or way, right? We all tend to look for the shiny object, right? The perfect system, the perfect diet, the perfect coach, this guy's going to save me, right? No, there is nothing. Yeah, we, we just talked a few minutes ago about the idea of trying to put food in the role of making us feel a certain way. It's the same thing with programs and diets and coaches. There is nothing outside of you that can make you anything. That is the big aha, the big switch in the mind. And once people understand that how they are comes from them, not from outside of them, then we can do some work. 
Yes. We say that all the time. There are a thousand different food plans that will work. There are a thousand different programs out there that will work. Ultimately it is right. It's this, what are you willing to do? What are the tactics that will work for your life long-term? Are you willing to be flexible? Right. And it's like getting them past like that rigid thinking. And like you said, that shininess and almost like the consumerism piece behind it where and I don't know which came first, right? Like if it's like the disease of more of, with the addiction. And so like, they're constantly seeking what's the next pill, what's the next detox, what's the next book, who's the next coach, or if it's consumerism and the surround marketing and all that, that plays on that. I'm not really sure. I'm sure that's a conversation for a whole nother time, but it's really interesting how they really play together. And so what you said just really made me, brings me to the next question, you know, so when you're working with those folks to address that, those emotional aspects of eating, like this is going to be because I'm, for what purpose am I eating this food? Well, I'm lonely. I'm tired. I'm angry. I'm bored. I'm sick. I'm thirsty. I'm stressed. I'm fill in the blank. So when you're working to address those emotional aspects of the eating, what specific actions do you support your clients to take to break those patterns of behavior, that paired behavior and that emotion? And it's just stuck on that repeat cycle. Like what's the wrench that we throw into that cycle? The monkey wrench that we throw into that machine. I love it. That's a great. Thank you, Molly. That's a good one. Is the pause. And if you're taking notes from listening to this, write that down in big freaking capital letters on your notepad, P-A-U-S-E, pause. When we have a trigger, something happens in life and we have a reaction to that, right? I'm stressed, I'm upset, I'm whatever, whatever the feeling is, we have developed this habit where we reach for a substance to either substitute or distract. And that cycle gets reinforced over and over and over. And the way that we break that is we insert, we don't try to stop doing that because stopping doesn't work. You have to insert something in the cycle. And what we insert is a pause between the trigger and the action. When you recognize that you have the urge to reach for the donuts because you just got a bad phone call, that's your red flag for your pause. Just to say, okay, we have the urge. And so we practice recognizing, oh, there's the urge. And then we stop and just take, and it literally takes two or three seconds for the pause and just say, all right, what is happening here? You don't even have to come up with an answer. You don't have to understand what's happening emotionally. You don't have to figure out what to do or why or all this kind of stuff. I and mean, it's great if you do, but just the act of pausing for two or three seconds breaks that automatic neurobiology feedback loop that we have. And then we're back in our executive function center of the brain where we are grown-up pants <laughs> and we can actually make a decision about what we are going to do. And if you decide from your grown-up pants that you're going to eat a donut, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. If you're eating junk food on purpose because you say, I want to go get ice cream, and you drive to the store and you go get ice cream and you have it and you enjoy it, you will never hear me complain about that because that is a grown-up purposeful decision. But what's killing everybody is the reactive unconscious stuff. So putting that monkey wrench in the machinery of the pause is the most powerful tool and the most essential tool. You cannot defeat emotional eating and sugar addiction and all this kind of stuff without that pause and developing awareness. Otherwise, you're just in the cycle. 
Yeah, I think for a lot of our clients, we suggest like maybe that pause is like reaching out to somebody in our Facebook group or reaching out and asking for help, just like taking, just getting it ahead, like you said, out of the amygdala into prefrontal cortex to be like, whoa, I just told on myself and what I was going to do. And now do I really want to do this or do I really want to follow through? And you're right. If you call it like grown-up pants, we might call it like attic brain. And if that is what you decide to go ahead and do, then you've already made your choice and nothing's going to stop you. And there's no program or anything in the world that's going to be able to convince you because that's what you've set out to do. And that's your decision. I'm wondering, you said you work with over like thousands of clients. Do you keep connected to them long-term? Do you have any idea of how your clients are doing, what the recovery rates are, like relapse rates for the individuals that you've worked with? I do stay in touch with some folks. I've got some folks I've had under my wing for, shoot, 20-some years, I guess. It's a long-time relationship. Very gratifying. Very special. As far as statistics, like you mentioned, I don't approach things from a, how should we say, quitting sugar, getting clean, you know, the on the wagon concept. So there really isn't a measure of whether you're successful or not. It's not like doing a 12-step thing where either you're clean or you drank today. It's not like that. So people's journeys, you know, my goal is to walk people through some of the hardest parts of their journey and give them some awarenesses and some tools and some techniques so that eventually they can navigate this kind of thing on their own. And I get a lot of really nice notes from people who talk about how different their life is and how much happier they are and how much better they feel now that they are in control of what they're doing. And so you don't have to eat perfectly. I don't try to encourage anybody to try to be perfect on paper as far as what your nutrition looks like. All we need to do is make sure that what you're doing is good for you, not bad for you, and develop ways of being around food so that you can be purposeful instead of reactive. Those are the two big goals. And sometimes in four weeks or five weeks, we really make enormous leaps in that purposeful versus reactiveness. And other times it's a real process and it takes years to walk through that. So it just looks different for everybody. It just depends. I could just feel your empathy for your clients as you were describing that. And I just really think about the clients that I've worked with over the years that are opioid addicts. And there's always been this really hard line of like, you're either clean or you're not. And then they're like medicated assistant therapies came out with Suboxone and methadone and other programs and stuff like, right. And so it's like this harm reduction approach. And there were just so many clinicians and folks in 12 step, you know, whatever. And they all had their opinions on it. And we spoke to a guest yesterday and he said it so beautifully too. He's like, people have to be alive in order to get well anyways. And earlier you had said, you know, big picture, ultimately like big windshield picture on this is you would love for your clients to get to this place where they're not using food as that emotional replacement, right? Like they're not using it as their skill. They're not using it as their reward. They're not using it as their entertainment, right? It's food gets put in its rightful kind of place to some degree, right? That's kind of what you're looking for. And so I just, 
when you were saying that, I was, I was just so happy to hear that there's like no one way to measure success. It's individual. Again, it's so individualized. If somebody comes in and they're binging multiple times a week on this stuff because of emotional reasons or the physiological dependence on it, whatever, and you're helping them to get off the physiological dependence is gone. And maybe now they're not binging. Maybe they still overeat occasionally, whatever, like that's success to that person who was binging multiple times a week. Right. And we have to acknowledge that there has to be room in this field to acknowledge that that is success. And who are we to show up and tell somebody, nope, sorry, you're not abstinent 100% of the time. Therefore you fail. That is so well said. Thank you. I'm going to have this transcribed and write down <laughs> some of that and make a plaque or something. That was beautiful, Molly. Thank you. Well, you should come to some more of my TED Talks. I'm very passionate about this kind of stuff. <laughs> but I mean, but this is exactly why we have guests like you on, Dan, because more people need to hear this. And I think this field, as we're trying to get it right. So Clarissa and I are both on the Food Addiction Institute on the board. And this year we submitted applications to the World Health Organization and the American Psychological Association, right, for the DSM-5, or well, it would be the DSM-6 or five revived, whatever, and the ICD. So that food use disorder or food addiction or sugar addiction, again, whatever label they want to give it, I don't care, can be a legitimate diagnosis and people can get help for it. Like you were saying earlier, like whatever label, but there are just a lot of people that I think get left behind or not acknowledged because you've been out there doing it for the last 30 years, but because you weren't doing it a very specific way, right? That you maybe have been passed over in being reached out to, to say, Hey, give us your knowledge. Give us your experience. You've been there in the trenches for 30 years. We have to believe that you have some very important information that our listeners need to hear. So I just very much appreciate you being here today. So I'll stop fangirling for a minute here and move on because we have a few more very important questions. So we all know that, like you said, like we all know you could ask anybody these days. I mean, my eight-year-old would tell you it's important to not eat so much sugar, right? So we all know it's important to stop eating the sugar. We all know that it's important to move our bodies regularly for cognitive benefit, for emotional benefit, all those things. We all know sleep is huge, a huge part of this puzzle. So while we know this intellectually, right? Like you call it in our parent brain or whatever, right? Like our executive functioning, our prefrontal cortex, it's so difficult, right? To make it a daily habit when our patterns of behavior, our rutted neural pathways have been something else for so long. So in your professional opinion, what are those main blocks that prevent us from taking that information we know in our prefrontal cortex and our parent brain and like really living it and integrating it and making that our new lifestyle? Like what are the things that you see get in the way of people wanting to do a thing and actually taking the action? Yeah. Great question. I can answer that. I got a number one giant. Yeah. Unquestionably, the number one thing that keeps people from doing stuff is trying to do too much at one time. That is in my experience, unquestionably the biggest thing. We all have a list in our head of 15 or 20 things that we should do. And when New Year's resolutions come around, that's a great time for everybody to pull that list out and be like, okay, I'm going to never eating dessert again, and I'm going to give up bread, and I'm going to give up wine, and I'm going to start jogging every day, and I'm going to go to bed at nine o'clock at night, and I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights three days a week, and all this stuff starting Monday. No effing way is all of that going to happen, right? Let's not kid ourselves. Those are beautiful intentions, and I love the ambition, but let's get realistic about what we can do, right? We can only track and manage so many new different things in our mind at once. 
So trying to do all of that in this complete life turnaround over literally overnight is just asking for failure. That is, it is a recipe for failure. So don't try to do too much. Pick one thing. What is, since we're talking about harm reduction, what is the one thing that is shooting yourself in the foot that you can make better? You don't have to stop doing it, but how can we make this better? If you are eating a thousand calories of pretzels every night before bed and it's keeping you overweight and keeping your blood sugar skyrocketed, let's figure out something, how we can manage that. So for example, this is a great example. Um, I actually have a client who the late night eating thing with the, he was a potato chip guy. So I said, all right, we're not going to say you have to give up potato chips because even though that's only one thing, that's still a really big thing for harm reduction we're going to make a deal. I started asking him questions about what is it that you get out of the potato chips, right? What is it that you like? What are you getting from this behavior? And we asked some questions and we talked about it. And it turns out it was the crunchy thing that he really liked. So it's like, okay, let's come up with some other foods that are better for you that are also crunchy. And the simplest thing was to pick up a mixed cut vegetable tray from the grocery store. So he had carrots and radishes and broccoli and celery and all that kind of stuff. And he's going to keep it in the fridge. And so our deal was every other day you eat the vegetable tray stuff instead of the potato chips. So we're not psychologically saying you have to deny yourself these potato chips that you love for the rest of your life because that is too big of an order and our brains will rebel against that eventually. What we're doing is saying, all right, you like crunchy. Let's figure out how to get you crunchy in a healthier way. So day one, have your chips like you've been doing. Day two, let's do crunchy in a different, healthier manner. And then day three, you decide you want the potato chips, we do that. And then day four, we're back on vegetables. So we've automatically cut the potato chip intake in half just from making that simple substitution. So harm reduction, 50% done right there with one thing. That's the kind of approach that you end up making long-term changes and improvements. Once you got one thing kind of under your belt and that becomes more normal and you don't have to think about it too much, then you can add another thing or make another improvement or another upgrade or something like that. But please, if you're listening to this and you are putting your hand up and saying, yes, I'm guilty of being the New Year's resolution person who tries to tackle 20 things at a time, don't do that to yourself. No one can manage that. So just pick one thing. Yeah, I like that. I th- in our we had a treatment group last night, and one of the participants was like, "Make a tweak a week." And I really just like that terminology because it, it really resonated. How we're like, okay, well, I'm not going to have this, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do this all in one day. And already, it's like deny, 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 which is what you're saying: rebel, rebel, rebel. Right. So, I like this approach for sure. And you're already making change. Now, I know when we work with clients, it's about the substance, but it's also the food, but not about the food, right? And so you put the food down and then you're kind of left with this like a bit of an empty life because life was so much about the food and now we're not doing the food as our life. So can you talk about or share your five non-intuitive lifestyle tweaks that will dramatically improve someone's well-being? Five lifestyle tweaks from Authority Magazine? I think that's where I got it. Yeah, that's where you found it. That's a good one. Thanks for pulling that out. <laughs> okay, yeah. They asked me to write up five lifestyle tweaks that you might not think of that go along the same lines of ways that you can improve without trying to 
give up or deny or go overboard on overcorrecting. So number one would be what we just talked about is start shifting your mindset to sometimes instead of never. You don't have to totally give up your favorite treats or your indulgences. What we want is better instead of perfect or total denial. So with the potato chip example we just talked about, that's a perfect thing. So now he has potato chips sometimes instead of every day. And it's not never, and it's not daily. And we've got more vegetables in the mix because of that. So thing number one would be shift your mind to stay away from the nevers and the giving up and the stopping kind of uh, verbiage. Put yourself in the mental space of sometimes. Let's see. Then the second tweak would be try to be better instead of more. As we talked about earlier, we can only track and manage so many different changes. So instead of trying to add more stuff on your plate to try to improve, take the one or two things that you're dealing with and improve those. So it's a good example of that. We could take our potato chip thing, our every other day business, and instead of adding additional things to think about and track, we could improve the one thing. So we take our potato chip and vegetable alternating thing, and then we start to maybe reduce the total number of potato chips on potato chip days. Or we do two vegetable days for every one potato chip day. So we're basically upgrading and improving what's already going on instead of trying to add new things into the mix. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Do you have the rest? I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Number three is we've got to learn how to manage stress eating and reactive eating. That is a really big thing that is shooting people on the foot. Even if a majority of your nutrition is healthy and good, Throughout the week, a couple bouts of stress eating or emotional eating or these slides off the cliff when it comes to hurtful eating. And it could be substance abuse, different substance abuses more than just food. But those are the things that can really undo a whole week's worth of progress or really add a lot of harm into the mix. So we've got to, even though they're not frequent, they're big and they're hurtful. So we really need to work on being able to recognize and manage these emotional eating reactions, triggers and reactions. Number four on that list is gratitude. I like to make sure that in addition to recognizing when we're in a space that doesn't feel good, it's important to make sure that we focus on what is going right. Sometimes people get in such a spin and have such a hard time recognizing things in their world that are good. I mean, we're sitting here right now having this conversation and every second there has to be like 10,000 different chemical and physiological reactions for us to even stay alive. So let's start with that. How's, <laughs> how's that for some, some amazing gratitude concepts right there? But I digress. The lifestyle tweaks. Number five, I use time boxing instead of denial. Time boxing is a term that we use to put some time constraints around behavior. So instead of saying, I'm giving up bread, I'm never having bread, 
the way you would time box that is say, I'm not going to eat bread between 7 p.m. and breakfast, right? That's a box of time. Or earlier in this conversation, we were talking about the overeating and how I like to eat too much food all at once. And so I put that time box on myself and I say, all right, for 20 minutes, I'm not going to eat anything else. And then after 20 minutes, I'll decide what is doing. So we're practicing discipline in a way, and we're practicing not indulging in our habits and urges and reactions, but we're not going to the denial place where we're saying, you know, this is happening forever. Alcoholics Anonymous is a perfect example of that. Their tagline is one day at a time. You don't go in there and you say, I can never drink for the rest of my life, even though that's the goal. You don't say that. You say, I'm not going to drink today. That's a time box right there. That's a perfect example. So that's a really powerful tool when it comes to changing behavior. Don't try to make it permanent overnight. Just say, okay, for the next bit, let's experiment with, you know, I'm going to try 30 minutes of not eating this or for three days, I'm going to see if I can do some stretching every morning. Don't set out to be like, okay, from this day forward for the rest of my life, I'm always doing this every day and I'm never, ever, ever doing this other thing. Never again. Don't do that. No, it's so true. And I'm laughing. Clarissa's laughing. We're just laughing because this is our, we did this. Clarissa and I are guilty of all of this, right? And then we we would fail within a few days or a few hours. And we would be like, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. All these things. And the truth is we're just not wired. Like you said, to have these 20 things and just, we're going to walk forth into the world with these intentions of 20 things. And it's just going to be like, if that were true, Dan wouldn't exist as a, you know, like this, you wouldn't be in this career. I would be in this Clarissa, right? Like we just wouldn't be doing what we were doing. We would be doing something else completely, which would be fine and dandy by me for sure. But yeah, no, I just, I thank you for saying those things because it's just so true. And that time boxing thing is it's so applicable. It's, it's like parenting yourself, right? It's like asking yourself to show up for the bare minimum. Just wait 20 minutes before you go back for a second plate of food. Just do 10 minutes of a walk. Just do 10 minutes of a stretch just today kind of deal. Right. And then the thing is, is like that action usually begets more motivation. Right. And it just kind of builds on itself. And then you can start habit stacking even then if you want to, and that's a little more advanced for sure. And I always talk to my clients about like, let's level up, but that's beautiful. And I just think that's super great advice. And I really, really, really want to keep going with this conversation, but I know we're all on time constraints today. So we're going to get to these last few questions for you, Dan. How do our listeners find you? My headquarters for this kind of work is beatingsugaraddiction.com. I think I'm going to have to start time boxing my meditation practice. (laughs) It's the one thing I struggle with so much. And I'm like, oh, it's, and of course, I am never successful in doing my 20 minutes a day every day. And so I'm going to implement this, Dan. So thank you so much for that suggestion. We have a signature question. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction, what would it be? I would tell the younger version of myself that the most important thing for people's healing and recovery and wellness, whether we're talking about sugar or other things, is whatever you do most of the time, that's what you get. If you don't like what you're getting, you have to change what you normally do. You have to change what is normal for you. So instead of looking for these external solutions, be it diets or detoxes or programs or whatever, 
we have to improve or change what you usually do. That's the nuts and bolts of growth and change right there. Whatever is normal for you, you're going to get the results of that. So change what you usually do. Change what is normal for you. Such a great answer. Thank you so much, Dan, for agreeing to be on the show. We're going to link all of your Eating Sugar Addiction for Dummies book and all the places that our audience can find you. And we're just really grateful for you giving us your time today. You are both doing amazing work. And I thank you for that. And it's really an honor to be asked to come on your show. So thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.